Good morning. I'm grateful to be with all of you. I'd love for you to turn in a Bible to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. It's after Philippians, which is after Ephesians. Some people use the shortcut General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Anybody learned any other ones? God eats popcorn. It's theologically problematic, but catchy. All right, Colossians 3, beginning with the first verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then down to verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, your sexual immora- in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're starting a series on the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. Aren't you excited about this? And uh, we're looking for volunteers to give their testimony each week just to kind of help us understand each of these, if anybody's interested. Now, where did these come from? Because the seven deadly sins are not laid out like that in the Bible. Well, it takes us back uh, to... A Jesus follower in the fourth century whose name was Evagrius Ponticus. And one day he decided to leave everything behind and walk into the desert uh, in Egypt to flee from the wickedness of the world. He wanted to find freedom from sin. And what he found after all those months and all those years in the desert was that the evil out there came along with him as the evil in here. And Evagrius would later uh, write about the seven deadly sins, which became this formative way that the church has made sense of sin for 1,500 years. Now, the question I'm sure a lot of you are asking is, why focus on something like the seven deadly sins? Isn't that kind of a downer? Isn't attendance going to drop? And shouldn't we focus on grace and love and, you know, things like that? Well, for one, our culture has a way of glamorizing these vices and even making them almost like like flaunting our freedom. And you can go down a dark hole of Google searches with this. Books that have been written about how to get the most pleasure out of the seven deadlies. Advertising agencies who pitch these creative marketing schemes uh, around the seven deadlies. On Amazon, you can buy color-coded wristbands to flaunt your fatal flaw. So that depending on how you're feeling that day, what kind of vibe you have getting out of bed, you can wear a yellow wristband if you're feeling kind of gluttonous or red on wrathful days or green. What do you think the green wristband stands for? Trick question. There's two shades of green for greed and envy. I'm not making this up. $13.95 per wristband. Next day shipping. 
There's a collection of uh, wines called the Seven Deadly Zins, for those of you who like Zinfentals. Um, then there's a voice, this voice of disregard that sort of sees the seven deadly sins as so primitive. Like, why would we want to go back in time into the dark days of religion with Dante's Inferno? One philosopher, Robert Solomon, mockingly writes in his book, Wicked Pleasures, and I quote, Among the man-made evils in this world, the deadly sins barely jiggle the scales of justice. And it's hard to imagine why God would bother to raise a celestial eyebrow about them. In other words, why they would rate as sins at all. We are still left with this odd portrait of a God of infinite concerns being bothered by a bloke who can't get out of bed, sloth or takes one too many peeks at a naughty playboy, lust, or scarfs down three extra jelly donuts, gluttony, or has a nasty thought about his neighbor, envy. So that's kind of the voice of mockery. But then on the other extreme end, you come across preachers and sermons that seem to have cut all the grace out of it, and it's just this giant crushed by guilt kind of thing. And maybe you grew up in a church like that, and so maybe this is making you a little bit nervous today to see on the cover of your worship guide, The Seven Deadly Sins. So for the next few weeks, uh, we're going we're gonna to try and chart a course that, takes, that both takes sin seriously, deadly serious, but without making this some kind of moralistic wallowing in guilt fest, but always with this singular eye toward the freedom that God has already purchased for us and longs for us to experience with him. So starting Ash Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, and for the next seven Sundays leading up to Easter, we're going to look at each of these seven deadly sins. But the way I wanted to begin this is really reflecting on the nature of sin itself. So if you were hoping that we were going to dive right away into, you know, gluttony or lust, you're going to have to wait till next week for that. What I want to do is offer a kind of framework for thinking rightly about sin, because there's so much confusion, and it's easy to get off track with something as tricky as sin. So a biblical framework, it really grows out of the Apostle Paul's understanding of sin. He's the greatest theologian, second only to Jesus. So five parts of, to this framework, and, and we're going to save the best for last. Okay, five parts, the best we'll save for last. First is this, sin is deadly serious business. Now the writers of scripture have all kinds of different words and images to describe sin. It's kind of like locals in Colorado have all kinds of words to describe Texans who take over their ski resorts during the winter. I'm not sure if they have all, all kinds of words, but, but the Bible has a lot of words for sin. Wandering off the path, missing the mark, broken, blemished, impure, enslaved, owing a debt. But one thing that's true of all these words and pictures in the Bible is they're deadly serious. This is life and death. Sin can destroy us. Now, maybe that's stating the obvious, but, but I'm not so sure that it is in our day. You ever notice, and um, maybe some of you who've been around longer than me will recognize this more than I can, but have you noticed how the language, the vernacular around sin um, has kind of shifted over the years? Like we used to be more, more comfortable even just with that word sin. And some of you I know grew up in churches where it was two syllables, sin, maybe even three syllables. But, but these days we often kind of speak in terms of deficiencies or errors in judgment or sickness or we use a lot of therapeutic language. In fact, 
pretty much the only time we actually hear words like adulterer and cheater and slanderer outside the Bible is if it's on some like Netflix period piece, right? It's, it's from another era. Even in the church, sometimes the way we talk about sin is, is actually more like this. What is the acceptable level of sin in my life where I'm kind of keeping safe out of the, you know, turn or burn zone? Like, um, and for the most part, I'm going to be okay in terms of my sin quotient. Like, what is the acceptable baseline sin threshold? Because I just want to make sure that I'm right above that. And the problem with that, as my old pastor used to say, it's a little bit like asking, how much cancer should I let build up in my body before I ought to do something about it? The problem with sin is not simply that we're going to get in trouble someday down the road. It is its own punishment at its core. And so the Apostle Paul, he uses this language of death. In verse 3 of our text, put to death therefore. Like, we're not playing around here when we come to sin. This is life and death. I have a friend who's in recovery, and he often tells me how he wishes that people, especially Christians, would go to an AA meeting, and they would watch someone who's been drunk for 30 years, someone who's lost their career and their marriage and their self-respect, who's been thrown in jail and been in and out of treatment programs and lost everything, who's shown up at their kids' soccer game stumbling around or not shown up at all, someone who has fought against saying these words with every fiber of their being for decades while watching his life be destroyed. And then to watch him sit down in a room full of other drunks for the first time to say the words that, that feel like death, but that actually bring him into new life. My name is Dave. And I'm an alcoholic. In one sense, these words are death. They're the end of one life, but they're also the beginning of another. They've been avoided every day for years, but from this moment on, they will be remembered and cherished. And around that circle, the other members of that AA fellowship will say, hi, Dave. They're celebrating with him. Not that he has a drinking problem, but that he's finally recognized the reality that he's got a problem he can't control and that will eventually kill him. You know, every week we have this practice that Ramey just led us in that we call confession. And I wonder if we were to get this, like, really correct, it would sound a bit more like, my name's Dave and I'm an alcoholic. Like, it would carry this same life and death weightiness. The problem is, my name's Brian and I'm a sinner. It just doesn't seem to pack the same punch that it once did. Like, there's not this gravity in saying it and owning it and going public with it. And I wonder if acknowledging our sin, it, it, that it doesn't seem to carry the same gravity of that circle of alcoholics. Because a drinker who says those words understands that once they say it, in light of God's grace, everything in life is about to change from here on out. Right? In church, we say, I'm a sinner, and we think that because of God's grace, nothing in my life has to change. Do you see the disconnect there? So that's the first part of this framework. Sin is deadly serious. Then a second part to help us think rightly about sin, uh, one way to look at this is that sin at its core is believing a lie. It's believing the lie that you're not really that sinful. This denial that goes all the way back to Evagrius going into the desert, that the evil out there is actually the evil in here. This is how Tim Keller puts it. 
He says, it's not, fla- it's not fatal to be a sinner. It's not being a sinner that's fatal, according to the scriptures. It's the denial that you're a sinner that's fatal. Do you, you see the difference there? So to use that parallel, again, not because it's worse than anything else or like higher up on the list, but it's just, it, it can help us to see. It is not fatal to be an alcoholic. Plenty of people who deal with alcoholism are still leading productive lives. What's fatal? It's being an alcoholic and denying that you are. That's what leads to destruction. Again, it's just a metaphor, but to take it a bit further, there's something about the evil of alcoholism or um, of, of, of other forms of addiction. There's something about the very nature of them that puts this for, force field of denial around you, this force field of lies that protects itself from the truth. And we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, how the evil, the evil one, our enemy, the devil, how this is his trademark. He deals in lies, and he wants that force field to keep you from seeing what is right and what is true. God says the root problem of our society, of humanity, of politics and world powers at war, the root of all of this is that we won't admit that we're sinners. It's not so much that we sin, but that we've bought into the lie that we aren't, that we are, aren't helplessly lost in our sin. And that's not the same thing as saying, well, you know, I'm flawed, to err is human. We all make mistakes. No, that's different than admitting you are helplessly lost in your sin, that you and I, and even the you know, cute babies that we baptize in this church, one day they're all gonna grow up and we are all capable of tremendous profound evil. And isn't that, isn't that the great lie of the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment experiment. For centuries, these, in the West, these great thinkers have said, when we can finally get past all that superstition and whatever of religion, finally we can bring a rational approach to the problems of this world, and then we can finally overcome poverty, and we can finally defeat hate and war and racism and every other societal ill. Really? You see, it all begins with this idea, this lie. We're not really that bad. We're not sinners. We're fundamentally good, and we just need to tap into that. Now, of course, better schools, better laws, better social structures, of course they make the world a better place. Thank God for that. But they cannot solve the evil that is inside each and every one of us. By the way, if we believe this, if we truly allow this to sink in as followers of Jesus, we should be the least defensive people on the planet. When someone criticizes us or calls out something they've been seeing in your life, like even if you don't yet see it, especially if you don't yet see it, we should be the most willing of all people to say, well, maybe you're right. Maybe I should take a good hard look inward because even if I don't see it right now, I know that I'm capable of evil. So at its core, um, sin is believing a lie about the reality of how things really are. So here's another part of this framework. Yes, this is a series about sin, but make no mistake, sin should never be the first and last word about you and me. Life with God begins and ends with love. Our belovedness is what defines us, not our brokenness. Uh, another word that's bigger than sin is, is freedom. And this is really going to be a series about freedom. 
John Orberg talks about how inside each of us is this closet called shame. And in that closet, we hide the things that mortify us. Secret addictions, sexual sins, big lies, something we've stolen. And the strangest thing happens when what we have tried hardest to hide is brought out into the open. We don't actually die. It feels like it at first. Instead, what we find is healing. We find freedom. A friend of mine shared with me recently about a struggle he's had with porn. And I could just tell by his body language as he shared this with me how there was so much shame and just the years of trying to keep it hidden and keep it secret and keep it in the dark. Like the mere thought of saying the words out loud made him feel as small and as dirty and as unlovable as he had ever felt. But then I noticed something else, that as we had this conversation, instead of being depressed and weighed down, there was actually like this, this lightness to him, like something had been lifted. What I saw was freedom of not having to hide anymore, that someone finally knew the absolute worst about him. And it was almost like this relief that somehow there's more freedom in being known for who you really are than being admired for who you're not. So this is not about guilt. It's not about torture. It's about freedom. The first time an alcoholic says those words out loud in the presence of other alcoholics, it feels like death, but it only leads to life and freedom. Sin is never the first and last word. All right, fourth part of this framework. Are, are we... Can I keep going? I got two more. Okay, fourth part. Overcoming sin is not accomplished by trying harder. Trying harder is never an effective strategy for sin management. And we're going to come back to this over and over in this series. It's not about trying harder. If you try to stare down and go after sinful habits and the spiritual forces of darkness and evil in this world with willpower alone, good luck. Trying harder on its own is not a strategy for overcoming sin. Now, that doesn't mean we just sit on our hands. We are not passive robots in this. Transformation is not yet available on chat GPT or whatever it's called. But we never forget that overcoming sin is ultimately a gift of grace. Now, we get to respond to that grace and participate with God in moving toward freedom. And so the New Testament in the New Testament, we often find this journey toward holiness described with both active and passive verbs. So that the Apostle Paul can say, make every effort, make every effort, even as he says, be transformed. Active and passive. Even in our text, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ. You didn't do it. It's a gift. It's grace. But you're not passive. So Paul says, therefore, set your hearts on things above. Therefore, set your minds. Therefore, in light of that gift, put to death your sinful ways. It's not about trying harder, but joining with God and participating with his grace. Does that make sense? Sin is dead. So just to recap here, sin is deadly serious. It's believing a lie that I'm not really all that sinful, but it should never be the first and last word about us. And overcoming sin is not accomplished by trying harder. But there's one last part to this, and we've saved the best for last. 
This is the good news about sin. And as Daryl Johnson reminds us, it's good news, not good advice, right? The writers of Scripture never give us good advice without first giving us some good news. And here's the good news. We do not have to sin. We do not have to sin. We all do, and we all will in one way or another, but we do not have to. Why? Because Jesus has done something to sin. Not just about sin, he has done something to sin. Something happened 2,000 years ago that changed the reality of sin. Before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, sin was present and at work in human life in one day, in one way. After the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, sin is present and at work in our universe in a different way. It's not gone. As we all know all too well, but something has happened to sin. Its place in the world has been altered forever, and it's been altered in the direction of freedom. The good news is that sin is not what it was before Jesus died and rose from that grave. Yes, it's still here, and it's still destroying lives, but it's not what it used to be. Another way of putting this, sin doesn't have the kind of relationship with us that it once had. It no longer has the kind of claim on us that it once had. Look at verse 3 in our text. It's these three simple words. For you died. How? Like in what sense did we die? We died to sin. Paul loves this phrase. We are dead to sin. Three times in his letter to the Romans, elsewhere in his letters in the New Testament, Paul loves this phrase. And here's what it means. Since the penalty or the debt of sin has been paid by Jesus, sin no longer has any claim on those who belong to him. So let me try just to illustrate this. Let's say, let's say that you owe $10,000 to the Bank of Texas. Bank of Texas. As long as you owe that 10 grand, you are alive to Bank of Texas. Bank of Texas has a claim on you. It has its grip on you. And I, I love Bank of Texas, okay? Don't get me wrong, but it's just an illustration. But, but once that debt is paid, Bank of Texas has no more claim on you. You are now dead to Bank of Texas. Or let's say that I owe $15,000 to the IRS, right? And, and don't get me wrong. I, well, I don't really love the IRS, but just keep going here. But as long as I owe that debt to the IRS, I am alive to the IRS. I am its slave, so to speak. It has its grip, it has its claws around me, right? But imagine Jesus coming along and paying that $15,000. Because the debt is now paid, the IRS has no more claim on me. I am dead to the IRS. I thought somebody was gonna say amen to that. <laughs> Till next year, that's good. That's the good news about sin. The debt of sin has been paid by Jesus on the cross. He, therefore, is dead to sin. Sin has no claim on him, and therefore, those who belong to him, sin no longer has any claim on us. 
Now, dead to sin does not mean we are immune to sin. I wish that were the case. Sin still glitters. It still sparkles. It dazzles us. It allures us and wants to draw us in and get its claws around us. But the good news that Paul announces is that we no longer have to respond to sin's appeal. We are no longer claimed by sin. The debt has been paid. Jesus holds the title. In Jesus' name, sin has to let us go. Through that old rugged cross, sin's hold on the world has been broken. We no longer have to respond to sin. We will and we do, but the good news is we don't have to. So the message of the New Testament is not stop sinning. The message is behold what Jesus has done for you so that you now belong to him so that you can look sin in the eyes and in the face and say, I do not have to give in to you. Lust, pride, envy, greed, I don't have to give in to you. Now that sin may whisper back, but don't you want to? To which we might say, honestly, yeah, I do, but I don't have to because you have no claim on me, only Jesus. Isn't that good news? Before he died and rose again, sin was master. But after he died and rose from that grave, sin is mastered by Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving your life and going to that grave to set us free from sin. And we long to experience the fullness and the joy and the beauty of life with you. And we pray that you would lead us by your grace to be those whose lives are marked by this freedom as we behold you and your love for us. Amen.